Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Good evening. By pressing play, you've unlocked a door with the key of imagination. Beyond is another dimension, a dimension of sound, a dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. Welcome to Agoraphobia, the Agora Podcast Network's spooktacular month of ghoulishly engaging content, celebrating the spirit of the Halloween season. So turn on all the lights Check all the closets and cupboards, look under the beds, and continue, if you dare. Part one of our program today comes from the mind of Tiny Vampire's podcast host and Agora's Dark Queen, Raven. Terrible as the dawn, treacherous as the seas. Stronger than the foundations of the earth. All shall hear her stories and despair. Thank you for coming to hear the untold story of an animal that most people completely ignore, if they know it exists at all. Caddisflies are the most diverse group of aquatic insects. Closely related to moths and butterflies, they, for the most part, are neither adored or maligned. They aren't creepy or gross. But, as you're about to hear, their lives would be right at home in any horror show. I'm settled into my cozy, dark case, and I have plenty of time. So let me tell you about my life. I was born into a world of clear mucus, struggling to breathe. From my vantage point, I could see that the goo that I was suspended in was attached to a plant, holding me high above a very small but beautiful pond. Alongside my siblings, I pulled and crawled my way through the mucus, tumbling through the air until... I landed in my watery home. Now able to breathe easy, I sank down to the bottom and started to get to work. I'm a caddisfly. Some people call me a caddis worm, which is funny because I'm neither a fly nor a worm. We are good at one thing, building ourselves the perfect home. 
there on the bottom of the pond, I'm rummaged through hundreds of bits of grass and chunks of dead leaves and sticks. After a thorough examination, I found buried treasure. Even now, months later, I can remember how excited I was. I cut my treasure to size with my sharp mouth, and I used my silk to stick it to the side of my body. You see, my body is very soft, so I need a case to protect me. Over the course of the first few days of my life, I found one treasured piece of construction material at a time, measuring, cutting, and knitting them together. Eventually, I had a case, a spiraling tube that left only my head and legs exposed. It was strong and beautiful. It protected me and hid me from my prey. I was a sly hunter in those days. When those little one-eyed copepods swam by, I would dart out of my perfect tube so fast that they had no idea what happened. I grew fast on my diet of copepods and long, worm-like midges. Then, something horrible happened to me. I dragged my home too close to the shore and got stranded, stuck and having a hard time breathing in the shallow water. Out of the muck, pulling itself through the weeds, a beetle came straight towards me, its huge jaws clamped down on three of my legs, tearing them straight off, struggling to get away and feebly biting at the beast. I felt my gills drying out, and suddenly, a downpour of rain began to pelt the pond, me and the beetle. The water level crept up just enough to give me an out. With the last shove, I shot out the back of my tubular home into the deepest part of the pond. Once at the bottom and snug in a crevice between two rocks, I tried to assess my situation. Thankfully, my legs were torn off, not cut off. Valves built into my exoskeleton between my body and where my legs used to be locked down so that I wouldn't bleed out. But the loss of my legs was still hard. Harder was the fact that my case was gone. I needed to build an entirely new home. Over the course of the next few months, I struggled, but I managed to survive. My new case was just as good, if not better. And now, I'm a cozy, three-legged caddis resting inside it. Everything is good. Well, as good as it can be. Except itchy. Really tired. I've never done it before, but I'll indulge my urge to seal myself up inside my case. And just rest. This time alone in the dark isn't as restful as I was hoping, though. My exoskeleton keeps getting more and more irritated, and I feel it start to separate from my body as I twist to try to find some kind of relief. My skin burns and itches for hours as it separates, little by little. It split open, just behind my head. Bit by bit, I can slide out of my old skin. I feel new and my skin feels tender. In the dark, I can't really see what I look like, but I feel very different. Moving around, 
I freeze when I realize that I've shed off my remaining legs along with my skin distantly. I think how strange it was that it didn't hurt. And I wonder if this case that I've sealed myself inside is a shelter or a prison. How am I going to capture food now? As I'm continuing to try to wrap my head around what's happening to me, wriggling and twisting inside, the muscles along my body wall get weaker and eventually stop responding. It can't be possible, but I think they're dissolving. I open my mouth to scream, but I feel the inside of my mouth and throat are also starting to melt. It feels like each cell in my body is starting to detach and float free. Solid muscles and organs have completely disappeared. I honestly don't know what's keeping me together, and I have no idea how I'm going to survive this. Deep inside my middle, I feel something moving and growing. No. Multiple somethings. The liquid mass that I've become, I feel small but hard, disc-shaped lumps writhing. That's when the worst pain I've ever felt hits me in the chest, like two bundles of nerves being slowly ripped apart. Over the course of the next few hours, or days, or weeks, time's lost all meaning when you're in this kind of pain, one of those bundles has moved up to where my face used to be. I don't know what's torturing me more, the continued degradation of my every organ, or the feeling of those solid discs moving and growing. With a sudden spasm of the little muscle that I have left, I feel my gut slough off where it used to be, a cyst starts to form. The spasms keep coming. They contract so hard that I can feel my whole abdomen start to forcibly change shape. The fluid that used to be in my chest is pushed forward into that space that's the closest thing that my monstrous form has to a head. One of those bundles of nerves that is causing me such pain is forced there too. This progressive destruction is going to kill me. What's happening? How is it possible that I can survive this? Those spasming muscles, too, start to liquefy. I'm starting to go completely numb and cold. Honestly, I'm just glad this torture is over. I'm left with only one single thought. What could be happening to me? And then, even that fades, and I die. There's a pushing feeling in my face, like something's inside my mouth and trying to get out, but it's not in my mouth. It is my mouth. Oh god. I'm having thoughts. I must not be dead. Dead things don't have thoughts. 
Waking up fully, I'm trying to move, but my body is pretty much still a random soup of cells. Surprisingly, I can feel that I have a throat again. It feels strange, though. What's even stranger is that I can feel that my body's no longer smooth and continuous, but has three distinct sections. I guess they won't be calling me a worm anymore. That is, of course, if I survive this. Those hard discs certainly have not stopped growing. They've taken up most of the space inside my body. The ones in my thorax are pushing on my skin like they're trying to get out. Four are pushing on my back while another six push at my chest. Once again, my skin starts to crawl and burn and itch as a layer of fluid forms just under it. It seems like there isn't a single part of me that is whole. Slowly, cell by cell, the six masses in my chest keep growing, pushing their way out. They grow long and longer, slender and jointed. Over time, they harden with claws at the ends and tiny spikes all down their length. The four that are pushing at my back are more rounded and they're covered in hair. From my head, even longer, more slender projections grow. They get so long that they can't grow forward anymore and curve and start to grow down the length of my body. Whatever these things are inside me, they seem to be using my body to fuel their growth. Suddenly I feel a twitch in my back. I flex and my body responds. There's some kind of muscle in my back now, but not anything like the muscles that I had before. Over time, it gets stronger. It's my one hope that I might survive this and start moving again. More time passes, and there's another familiar sensation. My gut feels queasy. And that makes me realize that I have a gut again. It's hard to describe. The feeling of going from an undifferentiated, wiggling sack of sludge to something more solid, more organized, or maybe more formed is a better word. New muscles move new intestines along, and I feel my new stomach attached to my throat. Just above the protruding finger-like projections that come out near my mouth, two huge, round, swollen mounds have formed. They came out of the painful mass that was forced into my head before. They aren't 
painful now, but the surface of the mounds feels very strange, like tiny bubbles are forming on their surface. At this point, I can't tell what's me and what's these strange growths. With a stab of pain, my world of darkness is shattered. A single point of bright light stings like a knife in my brain. Once I get used to it, more and more points of light appear, and a fuzzy picture of the inside of my case starts to form. Then another sensation comes roaring back. I am more aware of my stomach than I ever have been, and I am starving. I'm so grateful for anything that feels familiar, and hunger is certainly something that I've experienced before. More alien feelings come alongside the starvation. The long, jointed protrusions coming out of my chest have started to feel like a connection between them and me just popped into existence. They're lined up in two rows of three going down my chest, and I can kind of control them. Over the next few days, I distract myself from my constant hunger by moving my strange new muscles to move my strange new appendages. I don't know if they're me or not. I've changed so much, I'm not even sure if I'm still the same creature. I died, or at least I think I died. How do I know? I remember being young and living in my pond, the thrill of finding the perfect piece for my case, but it all seems fuzzy. So much has happened. Could all of that have happened to someone else? It's it's all too much. The starvation, the burning skin, all the new sensations. I can't take being trapped in here anymore, and I finally have the strength to get out of here. Pushing and flexing with all my might, I smash my head against the case, and I burst out all in a rush. Launching myself towards the bright surface of the water, my new long legs row. Each coordinated stroke thrusts me closer and closer to the water's surface. Dark shapes in the water lurk, darting in and out of my vision. The only thing I can think to do is just keep swimming. Bobbing to the surface, I take a moment to rest, but only a moment, because this Itching is completely unbearable. Trying to pull yourself out of your own skin feels impossible in the moment, but I've done it before, so I know that I just have to keep calm, concentrating. I thrust my head forward and let the motion pulse through my body to the tip of my abdomen. I can tell that if I pull too hard, or too fast that I'll tear these new, long, slender legs. And I finally have six legs again, so I'm not going to do anything to risk losing one of them. 
The long appendages coming out of my face are in even more danger. They're very delicate and incredibly sensitive. So when I thrust my head forward, I pull them out of my old skin. It's with as much care as I can manage. The old skin, the old me, slides away more and more with each wave of muscular contractions. I get one sleek black leg free and use it to stand on the surface of the water. I excitedly pull the rest of my legs free to leverage and thrust my head forward. The appendages on my head pull free and blow in the wind. The new sensations are overwhelming. With these fresh new antennae, I feel even the tiniest current of air, and I smell everything. I can smell the water, the flowers surrounding the pond that make my stomach groan in anticipation, and most enticingly, I smell more of my own kind. The urge is fierce. With a final kick, I push off my old skin. Another gust of wind picks up, and those hairy lumps on my back unfurl. I have wings. I lift them high in victory. I survived. I went through hell and was born into a new body. I'm whole. I'm more than whole. Something rushes up from the depths and... Crushed. In the jaws of a fish. I never got to fly. Hello. I'm Raven Forrest Riscalzo, the host of the Tiny Vampires podcast. What you just heard was the story of metamorphosis. The process includes enzymes liquefying nearly every muscle and organ in the animal's body. We don't actually know if the process is painful, but I personally have a hard time believing that it's not. 19 clumps of cells, called imaginal discs, hold the key to the new body. They've been there since the insect was born, but were dormant, waiting to take over and complete the transformation of the insect from the inside out, using the organ soup as fuel. If you want to know more about how our gross world works, come and join us on Tiny Vampires, a podcast about disease, science, and blood-sucking insects. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. 
If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And in our second segment... After last week's demonic domination of the American Gothic, returning champion Professor Claude Myron Goozer makes an evil encore to discuss the monsters of the Spanish Baroque in defiance of the ancient maxim, If it ain't Baroque, don't fix it. Halloween is a significant part of my upbringing, primarily due to its absence, or if not its absence outright, at least its absence in spirit, such as the life of the seasonal allergy sufferer and early-age asthmatic, that late October brings such paralyzing paroxysms of breathlessness and such an overabundance of grotesque fluids that while it was true that I was technically allowed by my parents to participate in the season, and that I did fairly regularly go to the utmost lengths of costuming available to a child. I can still conjure the sting on my tongue from the various cuts of a plastic Spider-Man mask. The most likely outcome was that I had to abandon all dreams of shocking and surprising my neighbors into delivering sweet treats after copious wheezing at the first doorbell rung made grasping my little hollow plastic would-be candy-catching pumpkin near impossible. I'd relinquish said container to my sister, who would walk on with our dad to complete the rounds while I slunk back to our house next door, where my mom stayed to pass out candy, and where I would plunk down in front of whatever Dr. Gruesome's movie morgue was playing for that night. And I suppose that's how I became a lover of monsters, although another cherished childhood memory was visiting the local library and grabbing any of the orange-backed movie monster books I could find from what the internet now tells me was the Crestwood Monster series. Though at the time, all I knew was that I needed to look for the orange spine and the wide-open arms of King Kong in the back flung outward in what many interpret as an aggressive stance, though to my three- or was it four-year-old eyes, it seemed more like a warm, accepting embrace. Be with us. Be a monster. So maybe it wasn't the tantalizing nature of my Halloween experiences that made me fall in love with the hideous and gruesome and misunderstood, because yet another indelible memory of the monstrous comes to mind from one summer visit to my grandparents in Alabama. A few blocks from their townhouse was a Kmart that had, if not a fully stocked toy section, then at least an exotic one. The selection there contained action figures I'd never seen before, mostly knockoff G.I. Joes, if I remember right. But the real prizes were beautiful, glow-in-the-dark, universal monster figures put out by Remco. The only one that fully glowed in the dark was the creature from the Black Lagoon. The rest, well, there was Dracula, Wolfman, Frankenstein's monster, Phantom of the Opera. 
The rest had weird splotches that made it look like they were splattered with blood if you took them under the couch to watch them luminesce. And that was really my first taste of Freudian attraction repulsion, desiring so deeply to watch them glow, being indescribably terrified when they did. Be a monster. Be with us. Play with us and join in the game. But what horror when you do. Look what we are. Look what you've become. Monsters and monstrosity have been on my mind a lot as of late, not just because we've entered the spooky season. When Daniel and I did Don Quixote for the Cannonball, I was struck by how much the more negative aspects of Golden Age Spain, the self-inflicted economic wounds, the ethnic cleansing, the seemingly endless and mostly pointless intercontinental wars, the paranoia and social repression, the overall feeling of pessimism, hopelessness, doom the constant surveillance, how much all of those experiences resonated due to the experiences of the last few years. In the past couple of months, I've been revisiting the Spanish Baroque, primarily through the book Celestina's Brood by Roberto Gonzalez Echeverria. His chapter on Life is a Dream, La Vida Sueño in the original Spanish by Pedro Calderón de la Barca is particularly enlightening in regards to monsters and their relationship to the Baroque. In short, the Baroque, at least the Spanish Baroque, has a particular affinity for monsters and monstrosities, in part as a reaction to the formal perfection required in high Renaissance aesthetic productions, and in part as a reaction to the political decadence and social horror of the times. Renaissance thought, to paraphrase broadly, sought balance and order, a resolution of contrarieties or contradictions, and it disdained any admixture of the impure with the pure. It dispensed with the unassimilable. And what is the monster if not an unassimilable admixture, the complicated coming together of contradictory pieces? Think Frankenstein's creatures sewn together from disparate parts. Or think of Dracula, the undead, not living, and not dead, but somehow something of both. Or the wolfman, both man and beast, innocent victim of a curse, and hideous, violent, psychopathic perpetrator of the crime. The monster is the rebuke to Renaissance perfection, and the Baroque may not have had a Frankenstein, or a Dracula, or a wolfman, but it had a minotaur. It had a Polyphemus, the Cyclopean son of Poseidon, whose blinding brought wrath on Odysseus, and it had a Hermaphroditus. References to these figures from classical mythology are common in many of the Baroque's aesthetic productions. The monster is typically a hybrid, not one thing, not another, monstrous because mixed in such a way that it can't be reincorporated into either or any realm and it must exist apart in its monstrosity. Usually. Life as a Dream does something a little differently. In case you haven't read it, here's a quick synopsis of the play that admittedly brushes past most of the complexities. It mainly concerns the plight of Sigismundo, the son of the King Basilio. At his son's birth, Basilio heard an oracle in a twist on the Oedipus myth proclaimed that Sigismundo would murder his father and degrade the state. Anticipating his son's future monstrosity, Basilio locked Sigismundo in a tower and kept him as a prisoner. 
Sigismondo never knew anything but his imprisonment, and he begins the play in what is essentially a bestial state. Through a few connivances and contrivances, Sigismundo is drugged, removed from captivity, and placed on the throne of his deposed father. Once on the throne, he's elevated from beast to prince, but before he can reign for too long, his behavior becomes bloodthirsty and lust-filled, and he's drugged again, returned to his imprisonment, where he's told that everything that he just experienced was nothing but a dream. In the third act, he's again broken out of prison during a civil war. As technically the rightful heir, he leads a rebellious faction into battle against his father, but while facing his father, as Basilio expects death, Sigismundo shows mercy, an act which causes Basilio to bless his son as his rightful heir. Woven through the main story is the secondary story of Rosara, a woman who disguises herself as a man to travel to Basilio's kingdom in search of justice from, or vengeance against, one of the visitors to the palace who had previously seduced her and left her before the events of the play. In the end, Rosara is united, reunited with her seducer, who ultimately had wanted to marry her anyway. And Sigismundo dedicates himself to good behavior, noting that this reality that he occupies may also be just a dream. The nature of reality is uncertain, so best to act on your best behavior. You know, just in case. So what does this have to do with unassimilable monsters? Echeverria is quick to note how Calderon's play hinges on a set of self-dismantling binaries. The critic is deconstructive in his outlook, but not exactly doctrinaire, and his exploration really makes a lot of sense and doesn't get garbled in a lot of the usual technicalities and terminology of deconstruction. So... The characters in the play make four transformations. Take Sigismundo. He starts as a beast. He becomes a prince. While a prince, he behaves like a beast. He has to finish the play as a beast-prince hybrid, possessed of opposing aspects occurring at once. Rosara begins as a man, is revealed as a woman, as the masculine, for the time, part of the soldier, and ends the play as a man-woman hybrid. The king Basilio starts as a king, is deposed, becomes a king again, and then, in opening the path to the throne to his heir, becomes a king who is also a deposed king. The play resolves in uncertainty. These characters' states are states of uncertain being. They're resolved, though not unrepentant, monsters. Excuse me, let me say that again. They're unresolved, though not unrepentant, monsters. But there's more behind this than just a focus on hybridity. Echeverria points out that the general conception of nature in Golden Age Spain was essentially Aristotelian. In this system, nature is ultimately bending towards inevitable perfection. Monstrosity was an accident in the system or a deviation from the intended goal. But, because the goal is eventual perfection, the accident can still exist within the system of order. Echeverria uses this framework to put the Renaissance and the Baroque into contrast. His words, While the Renaissance poet aspired to copy nature's successes, its manifestation of a perfect harmony, Calderon focused his artistic attention on the accidents 
the process toward an eventual perfection, not on perfection itself. The characters end in a monstrous state because the monstrous state is the state in which we all must live, neither here nor there, in between birth and death. Calderon's insight is that we are monsters, perhaps the outcome of divine or biological structured planning, but subject to accident and chance in a system which presumably ends in perfection, well, Calderon was a Spanish Catholic after all, but whose ultimate end or ends can't be known in any given moment. Each individual moment is open to accident. Sigismundo is convinced when he's first made a prince that his life as a prisoner was a dream. When he's returned to the prison for his atrocious behavior, he's convinced that his life as a prince was a dream. At the conclusion of the play, after he has proven his valor and his graciousness, he's no longer certain which reality he occupies. Is he a prince? Is he a prisoner? There's no clear way to tell, no way to be certain that he won't wake tomorrow back in his cell. This uncertainty leads him to humility and graciousness. That's the moral of the play. But where does it leave us? I've been meditating more and more on this sense of anxiety or tension created from the time of transition. The time between two states where the present state is one of uncertainty or unresolvable ambiguity. Transition is difficult because transition makes a monster of us. We're not one thing, we're not another, and a concomitant anxiety emerges due to that fact. There's comfort in knowing for certain the definitive condition, even if the definitive condition is negative. Going to the doctor is anxiety-producing because you don't know the outcome. The terminal diagnosis, even if the, if the diagnosis is that the result is terminal, it's a relief. Because the ending is at least clearly defined. It's the in-between that produces dread. A common expression during the quarantine of the past few months is that time has stopped. And we've been living in a kind of timelessness. But that's not true. What we've been living without is industrial time, the time of clearly delineated moments and clearly defined expectations for those moments, moments of specified activity accounted for in specified ways. To live without time is to live without change or transformation, but change and transformation are all around us. Hence the shift from summer to fall, or in my case, the shift from clean-shaven to bearded and gray-bearded at that. Time hasn't stopped. We live in time, but not our time. Not anymore. It seems a little outrageous to say, but I can't help but think that we live in monster time, a time where we're caught in between two states, after one thing, yet before another, waiting for the certainty of that final state. If there's anything else COVID has done to change my thinking, and it's done a lot, it's to reiterate just how present death is in every moment of life and how existence must be a constant source of anxiety because existence here now is the time after birth but before death, a time where chance and accident are the order of the day and technological control is hubris. We are hybrids of life and death, alive yet dying, constantly. Is it living or is it just the state of being undead or not dead yet? 
living means being an existential monster. But monstrosity is also fascinating and exhilarating. Why else was I so desperate to see my blood-covered glowing ghouls underneath the sofa? After it started feeling a tiny bit safer in the city, I started running again. I'd been a habitual treadmiller for the past few years, but some good running paths are right there, and I figured I'd make the most sense just to take advantage of them. It was liberating. The time of running is also monster time, time spent in motion, unresting between starting and stopping, neither here nor there, and never still. It's a time of fluidity and energy, of purposefully, paradoxically, breaking parts of yourself in order to make those parts strong. It's another version of that monstrous hybridity, and if anything shatters a Renaissance ideal of perfection, it has to be the image of an overweight middle-aged man, more flab than sweat, of which there is much, absurdly speedy despite the flailing awkwardness of every limb, careening over the pavement and past mass pedestrians off around some distant curve in a sidewalk. A perfect time of relaxation because I must not relax but keep moving knowing that the destination, home, back to my wife and my children, is unimportant because inevitable. Monster time. Fraught, anxious, where we're both dead and alive. Monster time. Liberating. Exhilarating. Inspiring because we still can imagine what can be because it's not yet final. A warm welcome back to those of you who made it back, and a little bit of advice to take with you before you go. Not all knowledge is safe, and some things you can't unhear. The smartest of you will count your blessings and stay clear of dark corners and dangerous downloads. But those of you more daring who laugh in the face of fear will undoubtedly be back like a moth drawn to the flame for the next installment of Agoraphobia. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.